Somewhere around the year 430 AD, John Cassian wrote a book called The Conferences. In this book, he recounts the conversations that he had with multiple mystics and monks while he was basically on a really long pilgrimage in Egypt. Now, near the end of this book, Cassian describes one experience in particular that really bothered him. You see, a feud had broken out between a bishop and many of the desert monks. Damn, bishops always, like, ruining everything, right? <laughs> but anyways, uh, sorry, Your Grace, if you're listening. Um, anyways, this bishop was upset because many of these monks, they had anthropomorphized God. That's a mouthful. Anthropomorphized God. In other words, they believed, like, well, many people do today, that God is, you know, basically an old dude with a long white beard. You know, like how God is depicted on The Simpsons. Now, the heart of the issue was that these monks, they were limiting God to their own idea of God. They were limiting God to a human form exclusively, and they were worshiping that form exclusively. And wasn't it Voltaire who said, in the beginning, God created man in his own image, and man has been trying to repay the favor ever since. Now, it's one thing to say, as the Apostle Paul did, that the fullness of God dwells in bodily form in Jesus, right? There's something to that. But there's, it's another thing entirely to say that my picture of Jesus is the most accurate one, or the best one, or even the most correct one, right? Like, even a good one. <laughs> you know, this notion that God, being God, can transcend everything that we finite human beings can ever imagine or envision, that God is utterly inconceivable, incomprehensible, this was a heretical concept for these desert monks in Egypt. And many of them demanded that the bishop be condemned because he held to a view other than theirs. This feud between the desert monks and the bishop, it reminds me a lot of that famous scene in the highly educational film, Talladega Nights, The Ballad of Ricky Bobby. In this movie, the famous race car driver, Ricky Bobby, ends up saying grace at the dinner table one evening. And in this heartwarming scene, the whole family is gathered around the table, along with Ricky's best friend, Cal, who's also a race car driver. Every head is bowed reverently, respectfully in prayer. When Ricky opens his prayer with these words, Dear Lord Baby Jesus, and he proceeds to pray to little baby Jesus for the remainder of the prayer. Ricky takes the time to thank baby Jesus for the food on the table and for his best friend, Cal. He also thanks baby Jesus that his wife is a, quote, stone-cold fox. And he expresses his gratitude to the little Lord Jesus for his two boys, who are quite appropriately named Walker and Texas Ranger. Now, at one point, his wife interrupts and says, you know, sweetie, Jesus did grow up. But Ricky claims that he likes the Christmas Jesus the best and that when she says grace, she can pray to grown-up Jesus or to teenage Jesus or to bearded Jesus or to whatever version of Jesus she wants to pray to. And then Ricky bows his head once more and he continues with, Dear tiny Jesus, with your golden fleece diapers and your tiny little fat balled up fist. But this time his father-in-law interjects and shouts out, Jesus was a man! He had a beard! But once again... 
Ricky argues that he likes the Christmas version of Jesus the best, and he's the one doing the praying, damn it, <laughs> right? At this point, Ricky's best friend, Cal, offers his profound words of wisdom, like some long-lost sage from ancient antiquity. Well, I like to picture Jesus in a tuxedo t-shirt because it says, like, I want to be formal, but I'm here to party, too. I like to party, so I like my Jesus to party. Ricky nods his head in agreement, but before he can wrap up the prayer, Cal can't help but share yet another version of Jesus that he really likes. I like to think of Jesus like with giant eagle's wings and singing lead vocals for Leonard Skinnerd. Yeah, that's definitely the best one, by the way. <laughs> Anyways, Ricky finally closes out the prayer by thanking the eight-pound, six-ounce newborn infant Jesus for all of his success that he's experienced as a race car driver. And also due to a binding endorsement contract that stipulates that he mentioned Powerade at each grace, Ricky gives thanks for the glory of Powerade and especially for how it cools you off on a hot summer's day. Amen. <laughs> My point? These Egyptian monks, they were basically praying like Ricky Bobby. They had clung to an image of God that they liked the most, an image of God that made them feel all warm and fuzzy on the inside, nostalgic, right? Church campy. And they refused to believe that God could be, and actually is, something far bigger than they can ever imagine, right? Well, Cassian tells us that at one point, a highly revered elderly monk came to realize that the bishop was right, that he had indeed been worshiping an idol of his own making. And when he discovered that God is so much bigger than anything he could ever comprehend, this realization, it shattered him completely. John Cassian says that with bitter tears and continual sobs, the old monk threw himself onto the ground and cried out, Ah, the misfortune! They've taken my God away from me. I have no one to hold on to, and I don't know who I should adore anymore or address. Friends, John Cashin teaches us that God is not our idea of God. No thought, no word, no, ever, no matter how noble, no thought or word could ever fully convey the divine, much less capture, right? Now, while most of us chuckle when we hear a story about a grown man praying to a little baby Jesus— or we think it rather foolish that an old monk could be more in love with his own idea of God than God himself, right? The truth of the matter is that the vast majority of us in the church, and outside of the church for that matter, we're no different. We're no different. We all tend to park our spirituality in our favorite liturgical parking spot or in our favorite book about Jesus, I mean, think about it. Which Jesus do you like the best? Which Jesus do you spend most of your time praying to? The Lenten Jesus? The Easter Jesus? The Pentecostal Jesus? The Transfigured Jesus? The Woke Jesus? The Social Justice Warrior Jesus? The Wisdom Teacher Jesus? The Revolutionary Jesus? Jesus the Ethical Teacher? Jesus, the only guy, the guy that only votes Republican, right? <laughs> Jesus, the Buddhist. Jesus, the guru. Or Jesus, the boyfriend. That's also a good one. <laughs> There's a girl. <laughs> uh, oh, my God. 
<laughs> so a girl in high school once told me that she couldn't date me because she was only dating Jesus. Yeah. And then two weeks later, I saw her walking hand in hand down the hallway with a guy who played lead guitar in the most rock and praise band in the coolest church in town. And it was on that day that I learned that Jesus's real name is Adam Husky. Because <laughs> that was that guy's name. <laughs> Apparently, Adam Husky was Jesus because the girl had told me that she was only going steady with Jesus, right? Hmm. I completely forgot what the hell I was talking about. What am I talking about again? Okay, yeah. <laughs> My friends, even though we receive the Eucharist every single Sunday, in a very real way, mystically speaking, many of us, if not probably most of us, we still haven't made it past the fraction. You know that part in the Eucharist where the bread is actually broken? For so many of us, our spirituality revolves around an unbroken host, an unbroken bread, an unbroken Christ. Like Peter, we recognize that Jesus is the Messiah, right? But when it really comes down to it, we don't really want him to go to the cross. We don't want who he has been to us in the past to die. We won't let the images and the expectations that we have placed upon him, we won't let those things be crucified. As a result, so many of us are still praying to a pre-crucifixion Jesus, not the resurrected Christ who trampled down death by death and who fills the entire cosmos with his presence. The 14th century English mystic, Walter Hilton, and I've quoted this guy like a billion times on this podcast, but you're going to hear it again because it's one of the best quotes, most helpful quotes of all time spiritually. Walter Hilton, he once said that if, even if Jesus were to fully manifest himself to you in all of his resurrected glory while you're praying, you should attach little importance to the experience and just keep on praying, keep on going. Why? It's not that such an experience wouldn't be incredible, but remember even if you can see the glorified Christ like the disciples did on top of Mount Tabor, it doesn't automatically mean that you're going to get it or that you're going to get him, right? You can walk down that mountain and be just as much oblivious as you were going up that mountain. Furthermore, and more importantly, just as soon as this experience is over, your like spiritual high, your mystical experience, whatever you want to call it, just as soon as it's over, it exists to you now only as a memory, only as an idea, only as a mental image, and very likely it only exists to you as a stumbling block now, an idol. And rather than pressing on to dive deeper into our union with God, most of us just end up trying to get back to that past spiritual high that was so freaking rad, right? In my opinion, most people who feel distant from God, they only feel this way because they are trying to replicate some past experience of the divine. They're like missing out on who God's trying to be to them in the present because they're so busy chasing the past. Instead of being open to the fullness of God's revelation, like right now, they're too busy trying to repeat some past mountaintop experience. But think about it. Like if I only love my spouse for who she was to me in the past and not for who she is to me today, like, I'm not going to live into that relationship very well at all, right? 
Why should it be any different with God? This is precisely why Jesus preached a message of repentance, metanoia. We have to transcend the limits of the mind, which is what repent literally means. We have to let God transcend the confines of our minds and all of our images of the divine. Now, images aren't wrong in and of themselves, but no single icon can ever convey the fullness of revelation, the fullness of the divine. We have to let learn, no, excuse me, we have to learn how to let God surprise us with who he is and where it is that we can find him in this present moment, right now. We must make it past the fraction, not just liturgically, but mystically. If Christ our Passover is never sacrificed for us, then we can't, we can't keep the feast. For those of you, for those, uh, I can't talk. <laughs> for those of you who are Episcopalians out there, do you know what the rubrics actually say in the prayer book when it comes to the fraction in that part of the Eucharist? There's actually specific instructions given there. And usually, uh, the, the most common word used in the prayer book, if you don't know this, is may. This prayer may be said. This hymn might, may be sung, right? There's a lot of permission to like be flexible. When it comes to the fraction, there is no flexibility. This rubric must be kept, even though it's like one of the most broken rubrics in the entire Episcopal Church. And the rubric is this. The celebrant, or the priest, breaks the consecrated bread. A period of silence is kept. Is kept. Why? Because the only way to touch the reality of the fraction mystically speaking, is through silence. It's not just bread that we are breaking in the Eucharist. It is our mental images of Christ that we are breaking. Coming back to the road to Emmaus story that we talked about in the last talk, you know, the two disciples on the road, they actually encounter the risen Lord Jesus, but they don't recognize him because they're too busy wallowing in their own grief about him, funny enough. It was their own idea of what the Messiah was supposed to be and what Jesus was supposed to do that kept them blind to his actual presence walking beside them. But Jesus explained to them just how much the law and the prophets had pointed to his death all along and their hearts began to stir. And later that night, he broke bread with them. And as he was handing the bread to them, their eyes were immediately opened. They were enlightened. But just as soon as they recognized him, he vanished from sight. He just disappears like that. Where exactly did he go? What was that really great line from Thomas Keating? I'm paraphrasing it. I'm just trying to remember it off the top of my head. Someone once asked him why, if Christ really is present to us, then why can't we see him? When you are Christ, Keating said, there's nothing left to see. The two disciples in Emmaus no longer saw Christ in the body because in that moment, through the fraction, they became his body. As Meister Eckhart once said, the eye through which I see God is the same eye through which God sees me.
This is no small thing that happens when we gather to celebrate the Eucharist. You know, as we consecrate the bread together, the bread goes from being just plain old boring bunny bread, or whatever bread, whatever version you all use in your churches, it goes from being just plain bread to the real presence of Jesus. But just as soon as this bread becomes the real presence of Jesus to us, we immediately break it. We let go of what the bread was to us just moments before. Think about it. If this bread is never broken, we wouldn't be able to receive it. If this Christ is never broken, we wouldn't be able to receive him. It is not enough just to see the bread in the priest's hands. It's not enough just to see Christ. The entire point of the Eucharist is to become one with the bread, one with this Christ. As St. Ignatius once said, in the Eucharist we are called to become what we receive.